0: If you're worried about building a moat, best moat in AI is, is generate your own data. Right, and, and a lot of that, that's what hardware does amazingly well, right? So we see this in all sorts of interesting things. It's like some obvious stuff like, hey, I'm gonna build a remote sensing company, awesome. I have my own imaging and I can analyze that, that's great. Less obvious are things like, I'm, I'm looking at a 1970s process for cement production that was too hard to characterize and control. And now I can characterize and control it super cheaply because of AI. (laughs) You know, so like I literally can build control systems for things that I couldn't control five years ago.
1: Welcome back to the Clean Techies podcast, where we interview climate tech founders and VCs to discuss all things building and investing to solve the biggest challenge of our generation, climate change. On this episode, we had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Sean Abramson, managing partner of Third Sphere VC. Sean has over a decade of investing in early stage companies, leading Third Sphere, and before that he was a founder and PM himself. So a lot of shared experiences, both from the investing and the founding angle. He spoke especially well to the struggles of investing in climate tech, specifically in hardware and had inspiring stories to share about how founders can still be successful. We also got to talk about his talk at New York um, Climate Week on the Climate Capital Stack, and his two frameworks called Design for Finance and the Escalator of Impact. It was a lot, but in the best kind of way. Imagine just being able to learn about all the things you need to know about climate finance in one episode. As always, let us know what you think and enjoy the episode.
2: Hey there. Are you building a climate tech business and looking for very specialized talent? Consider reaching out to our sponsors, NextWave Partners. NextWave are experts in talent acquisition, recruitment, and retention across the climate tech, renewables, and ESG spaces globally. So if your team is growing or you're looking to make a career change yourself, feel free to reach out to NextWave at next wavepartners.com or reach out to one of their consultants directly via their LinkedIn page.
3: Impact brands represent the choice to live our lives in alignment with planetary action and our values to preserve our amazing home for generations to come. Be it through solar panels, how you travel, where you're sourcing your materials, the choices we make matter. And I know you know that if you're listening to this podcast. My name is Anna Constantinova and I'm on a mission to make impact brands our next paradigm. I believe that marketing can be used for us rather than against us, and I want to help you build the best brand possible so we can all pour our strength into solving the biggest issue of our time. Whether you're a founder or an investor representing portfolio companies, let's work together to make sure your brand is seen, heard, and remembered the way it deserves to be. And as a thank you to the Clean Techies community, I'm offering 20% off my newest launch, Branding Sessions, with code CLEANTECHIES, one word. We'll take 60 or 90 minutes to solve one specific problem, whether it be a naming issue, strategy development, business growth, or beyond. Let's put our minds together and move forward with renewed energy. Can't wait to hear what you're working on. Find me at anako.co, that's A-N-N-A-K-O oco Talk soon.
1: All right, welcome to the show, Sean, how are you?
0: I'm excellent, thanks for having me.
1: We're really, really excited to have you on today um, in, in preparing for this, it's it's always super surreal to be able to talk to people who spoke at climate week and also had, you know, a platform in which they got to get their work out because we see it. And then to be able to have that conversation in person is a totally different feeling. So um, both Silas and I have been super excited for this and we really appreciate you taking the time.
0: Yeah, no, I'm glad, why don't glad we... to do it.
1: <laughs> why, don't, why don't we kick off? Uh, why don't you tell the audience a about yourself and what you
0: do? Yeah, so um, my name is, is Sean Abramson. I um, let's see. I, I I still think what I do is investing. Um, it's it's early stage, and so sometimes it feels a little bit like trying to sort science fiction from reality. Um, uh, but I've been focused on you know early stage, usually one of the first investors in climate in a very broad uh, sense for the last decade. Um, and before that, um, was a part of a few interesting things. Um, I went through the dot-com bubble and, um, was part of such a catastrophic failure that it became a documentary. So that's, that, that's kind of unusual. Some good learning. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I think maybe what's a little bit unusual is, um, you know, quite a technical background. So I've done electrical mechanical and then got a master's in building simulation tools at MIT. Um, have lived in a bunch of places. So, grew up in Cape Town, spent a bunch of time in Zimbabwe, uh, and then, you know, came to the US for school. Um, also along the way, accidentally went to school in Germany with a bunch of award winning advertising people. So, um, I would say I'm fairly curious. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not big on the status quo. Uh, and uh, yeah, maybe that's the relevant part. We'll, we'll, see, we'll see what comes across in the rest of the discussion.
1: Did, that, did any part of that background for you, do you feel like any part of those resonate the most with your venture career now? Because um, obviously there's a lot, of, a lot of synergies that aren't necessarily venture, but, but do a lot of good for you.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I think there's maybe two things, and we'll we'll probably touch on this in different ways. Um, The one is, like, I think engineering teaches you to think in a specific way, and building models for engineering takes that a little bit further. And so, um, you know, sort of looking at the world from first principles and building very simple, they don't have to be complex things, but just sort of figuring out a narrative with numbers like i can't do stuff in my head i'm somewhat dyslexic um and so i like to put stuff in spreadsheets and just ask basic questions so if someone says you know we will be you know reusing most of our clothing within 10 years you know you can sort of model that out very quickly and look at what that means and if you actually think it's believable so i think that's that's useful we do a lot of very simple models um And then I think the other thing, which is I just didn't realize how different the skill was. But when you meet award winning media and advertising people, they have a profoundly different way of looking at the world. It's it's mostly like, how do people behave? You know, what are people actually thinking? What are they actually going to do? And I think engineers are like super naive about that. Like we spend too much time with things and not enough time with people. And so and so generally, I find like myself included, quite naive. And so I think in climate, it's particularly challenging because there's a lot of social pressure to say the right things. Um, But then when you get into it, the cost of doing the right thing usually means people don't do it.
1: I think not everyone is willing to be real about that fact, which is when you're a thought leader within climate, when you're managing capital within climate, you're balancing not only returns, but pressures that will come with that impact. Could you talk about a time where you tangibly felt like you were pulled in two different directions between what was good for the fund and what pressures were associated with climate?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the most recent sort of recurring theme is voluntary carbon markets, right? So I think there is ultimately an essential need for carbon removal. I think that currently is just not a business model because I don't, I don't think that um, the way the market evolved uh, can be trusted. I mean, I, that's not just based on reading. We started to write that up two years ago. And the reason I think we believe that is if you spend time with people who trade things, right, especially in the financial world, um, they have a bunch of different incentives. And so as soon as you start to talk about market and a new asset class, you've got a bunch of adverse behavior. You've got people making junk, and you have people who want to trade the junk for fees. And those are terrible, terrible things. And so you know, there's pressure because I think on the one hand, you want to get behind that and so you know, support that. You want to support the founders that are building carbon removal. You want to support the people building the market. But it it felt like from the beginning, it was destined to be. You know a bunch of adverse and sort of you know outcomes and and bad behavior you just the incentives are wrong um and so that you know that's a challenge. It's hard to go to l p s and say yeah, I know you're excited about carbon removal, we just don't think there's a business model and they're very very smart people saying exactly the opposite
1: no I think that's definitely true. and a lot of the transferability within the new um credits within the i r a is has kind of brought that again to the forefront, which is what are you buying and what do those things actually stand for? So I think it's an incredibly relevant topic.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's the complexity, the main difference I think from doing, so I did like seven years of just general sort of no specific thesis, um, early stage investing as an angel investor. Um, It's nice and simple, right? You can, you can focus on the team, you know, you know you convince convince yourself there's a massive market you know some some exposure to large upside some pathway to grow quickly it's not that it's not complicated i mean it it isn't that complicated especially early on right i mean i think as you get into growth stage there's a little bit more quant there's a little bit more competitive stuff to figure out i just never it's not that hard like if you enjoy it and you like tech and you enjoy meeting the people building stuff it wasn't hard what makes climate like outrageously hard is the customer signal right like just trying to figure out like what is the gap between a thing that people should do versus what they actually will end up doing and it's really easy if you care a lot about climate to fall into the hole of should do versus will actually do
1: do you think there's been times as an investor just to double tap on like that's really really relevant here Do you think there's been a trend in where bad signals come from? Are you noticing that over time you've been able to train yourself against bad signals on climate? And what are those?
0: Yeah, so I think you can constantly sort of play a game of listening for what you think reality is, right? So I'll give you a simple example. Very unpopular opinion is we should go back 15 to 20 years and thank Chinese policymakers for current progress in climate. Like we collectively, everyone who cares about climate should seek them out and say thank you. Because there's no other way to account for the fact that 80% of batteries and solar and wind come from China. And we can get into why that is, but like a big part of it was just a top-down communist party decision to do that stuff. Now, I don't get me wrong, I'm like not in a hurry to go and endorse or live in China. Like I don't there's I, there's lots of lots of issues. Um however that to me is a reality. If you can't acknowledge that, then I, I start to worry about the rest of your sort of model of why things are the way that they are. So there's a lot of those things that you can, you know, if someone says to me, hey, I think the world changed because people want to save the planet, like I'm I'm immediately worried. Like you've lost me. I don't I think generationally there's some people who could say that they tend to be wealthier so it tends to be a small percentage of the universe. Um, I think people are nervous about what climate means, but not necessarily prone to do pro-social stuff. Um, and I know that may sound cynical. I just think that like it, it's the same for me as thinking about early adopters in tech. If you look at any new thing, those things really look silly and a rational person is not going to adopt them. Like the first iPhone was that. It's like, what are you going to do with a big screen with no keyboard? It's really silly. Right. But if you're the person that wants to be first, no, go ahead. But then comes the hard part of figuring out, okay, how do you go beyond that? Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, other signals that are interesting. Um, I think it was useful to be deeply skeptical about fossil fuels. So I think that, um, I think there are some people in in the fossil fuel industry who legitimately see that they need to play a constructive role and they probably can. I think it's really difficult in the history of large influential corporations. What they tend to do is cross a threshold of power where they really just want to keep power. And then you kind of need a model for like, what are the limits of what these people will do to keep power? And I would say there probably are no limits. Right. And that's, so then you, then you have to ask yourself when people say things like it's hard to decarbonize or how are we still talking about EV range? Or how are we talking about, you know, relative use of a lot of materials for electric vehicles relative to current vehicles? Like a lot of that stuff is just funded by incumbents. And so that just makes it even harder to sort of sort through what's real, right? You've got legitimately people trying to make economic decisions versus do the right thing, which has historically often costed more. And then you've got a massive investment in disinformation. This
2: is interesting. I I really think, um, you know, we've had over 130 episodes, and I don't think anybody said it as uh, willing, willing to just say, listen, there is no clear way. There's some things that might seem very convoluted because like in the case of China, right? Like it is, we we have a lot to, to thank them for. And there's also many other cases where you look at the oil and gas companies and majors doing things to actually, essentially they're the ones funding some of these projects, right? Because of the pilots, without them being willing to buy the technology, you may not have other people doing it, right? And the technology may not advance in some cases. However, that doesn't mean we want to promote oil and gas, right? So it's just really interesting to hear you verbalize that. I think think it's just like the
0: the the, the scale of. I think the one fun part of sort of living with media and advertising people for a while was that you can you can start to get a sense of how much is spent to promote a specific reality, because that that's what we're talking about, right? Like, and that's not ad buying, that is having an audience with a journalist to give your version of a story which often lands up being quite a bit less critical than it should be because you have someone who just sold the same company media. So those conflicts exist throughout. our So then you have to ask yourself, so what are the sort of reliable ways <laughs> that you can figure out what reality is? And, and I think over time we just kept coming back to, you have to go and sit with customers and you basically have to ask them the same thing in different ways over and over again. And sometimes you have to take them out and have a few drinks or if you live in California, have some mushrooms and try and get to reality. And that is, that's just super hard. I think it's a harder lift than any other part of tech, maybe healthcare where there's a lot of incumbents and so there's a lot of noise, but it's, it's not, it hasn't been the case that tech is being sold into an environment where there's a massively powerful, think multiple top 10 companies in the world like that's not what tech disrupted before tech disrupted you know parts of media the biggest media companies didn't make it into the hundred biggest companies in the world maybe i mean disney there's maybe there's a few exceptions same thing with retail right if you if you think about what was disrupted to some extent financial services right like you're not really going up against the same scale <laughs> of 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 interest you certainly don't have a situation where you have whole countries who's, who's like 50% of their GDP is oil and gas. Like tech hasn't tried to disrupt that. Maybe like SpaceX is is the only company that could claim to have gone up with a national program or gone ahead. So I think those things are worth keeping in mind because it, it makes getting real customer signal just much, much harder.
1: I think that side of things... Is really interesting. Obviously, I think when you're talking about a media organization, it's cool to hear that perspective because, you know, I think within climate and media, that's something that we think a lot about, of course, with given the platform that we have, and also trying to understand the yeah. intersection between how multifaceted you have to be. It's an interesting parallel that I think, like you said, the context switching does apply and translate pretty well because you do have to get down to the basics of what do people want at the end of the day. Um, yeah. So, and so and I think like- that's
0: in 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 the fossil fuel world, what would be nice if and I think that they they do this now. Um they tell their shareholders this, it would be nice if fossil fuels just said, Yeah, we know climate's important. Also, we would like to grow our business over the next twenty years.
2: Hey there quick break to remind any founders or VCs listening. If you are looking for deal flow, seeking to raise funding, looking for partners to help service your needs, or perhaps you're looking for corporate investment partners, feel free to reach out to us through our Slack channel, which can be found in the description. Because we meet a lot of people in this space, we set aside time each week to make introductions to the various people that we encounter. This is something we do free of charge in order to help these incredible companies solving climate change to scale. Looking forward to hearing from you in the Slack channel.
0: I'm fine. I just would. I would prefer that they just say that explicitly, so we kind of know, right? But but up yeah. until recently, that was this. There was sort of this maneuvering in the background. Um, and so once you know that that's true, at least you can sort of discount. So so. But but it's like, it's it makes it super hard. If someone comes to you and says, "Hey, I have a McKinsey report," and McKinsey says X Y Z, and I don't want to pick on McKinsey. I, We can can edit out and put in any any consulting firm. The challenge for most of those firms is who is that report being sold to? It's it's not being sold to an early stage climate founder. It's not being sold to an early stage fund. It's generally being sold into an incumbent who needs some reassurance that there are scenarios in which they can thrive. So then how do you discount that? Right, um, is that what's likely to happen, or is that what you can sell today, with some plausible probability that that scenario is going to happen? And and anyway, it just, I think that um, it's just unusual. I don't think there's been another part of tech uh, or startups where the, the 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 sort of quality of information is so low, right? And and there's stuff that is you know hundreds of pages long that is probably just never going to be reality, right? But it has all the peer review and it has all the logos and that's unusual.
1: Definitely. Mm
2: -hmm. And I think
1: one thing I want to do right before uh, we go any further, just for the audience, could you talk about your work with Third Sphere? I just want to give the full context that obviously we know, but love to add that to the conversation now. So,
0: Yeah. So Third Sphere, um, you know, we started off 10 years ago, Um, the thesis was a bit more narrow. Um, and um, at that point, we weren't sort of tracking IPCC. We, we actually were looking at local government policy. So we looked at a group called C40 Cities. C40 Cities at that point was about 10 years in. So they've been around, you know, since early 2000s. And what C40 Cities did was bring together the 40 largest cities in the world, and basically map out, you know, multiple climate scenarios. Like here are all the things that we could try to first decarb, and second, do adaptation and resilience. And so that second thing is is very important because one thing that we notice in the sort of newer generation of climate funds is we're generally not talking about adaptation and resilience. But that's been a, you know, today that's thirty percent of our portfolio. It's been a core thing that we cared about from the beginning. Um and it it informs decarbon in different ways. So at a very, very simplistic level, um, when people talk about things like levelized costs of energy, we look at that and we say, well, that's interesting because you're assuming that the grid reliability stays the same, and that t- seems like a terrible assumption. <laughs> so how should we think about that? Um, so it's been helpful to have both of those things. We didn't, just to be clear, like we literally took the, the sort of policy framework from C40 cities. We did sort of copy pasta into like our framework and we're like, let's see if we can turn this into an investment, um, approach. We avoided a few things. So we said, we don't know much about the grid. We don't know much about generation. It seems like that sort of industrial policy level stuff. So we're going to stay away from that. We, we probably can't match the expertise and the capital. So we really did do sort of a search for you know decarb buildings, decarb transportation, touched on a little bit of industrial um and then adaptation resilience. We weren't early on very sure how to think about land use, so we came back to that later. Um maybe a few unusual things. Right from the get-go, we did a lot of hardware. Right. So had conversations with investors that are you know, some of the best in the business, right? So um, I've known like Rulof at Sequoia for a while. um, And in the first year that we were starting, basically said, here's the thing that we're thinking about doing. Seems like a lot of hardware. seems like a lot of regulation. Seems like work with local government. And and his response is, it's worth doing. I just don't know if these are things we would do as a follow-on investment with you, which is terrifying. So, so that, that's where we started, and, and um, I think all we were trying to do in the beginning was not – we weren't trying to build a platform. We, we literally were literally just trying to figure out, is there a way as an angel investor to go and make investments related to climate at a point where the default response was, hey, I just lost a lot of money in clean tech. Are you really going to do this thing? And so you know, fast forward to today, you know, we are allocating out of a fourth fund we still work really early on. The reason we like really early on is because we've touched already on the customer signal piece. That That is a huge part, customer and distribution is a huge part of how we think. If we meet teams any later, usually they've made some decisions that we can't discuss. <laughs> They're kind of locked into those things. So, so we prefer to be early, we like, you know, like I said, we don't we don't mind hardware. I think it took a while, like our first two, three years, our customers, could, I mean, our, our um, founders could not raise. We had to learn how to pitch hardware or to help them pitch hardware. And in the process of doing that, um, we had to learn how to sort of negotiate the fact that hardware is going to require more capital, but it can't come out of the cap table. So how, what do you do? Um, and so today we have early stage VC, but we also have a credit platform that's in its third iteration. Um, we can talk a little bit more about that, but but it's really an answer to where does the capital come from that cannot show up on the cap table because it breaks the math of cap table. <laughs> and, and there's lots of answers to that. But it turns out one that we like is off-balance sheet leasing. Um, and so that's where we focused. There are other things we can touch on all the other ones, but that's, that's what our platform does. Um, yeah. And I think our general, like our team is, we've all built products. So our, I think someone, you know, we talked a little bit about, I was saying to you, what are you doing as a PM, um, in, in a, you know, with Schmidt and, um, I, I think our general approach is we talk to founders about what they need. And our sort of first line of support is, do we have an email for someone who could be helpful? And that works really well for a bunch of things, right? It's other founders. It's people who've built great sales teams. It's people who know a specific industry. It's great. But in a few cases, we ran into problems where we didn't have a good email. <laughs> so we're like, okay, is this just bad network? Like, what do we do? And in some cases, we got to the point where we're like, actually, no one's doing this well, right? There, there are lots of people who can give you advice, but they're telling you to come back in five years and so we should go and build something, and that's how we landed up doing credit. So that
1: was that's incredibly informative. Like starting off with understanding sort of city impact and that kind of policy and and that parallel. Now you know many many years later, understanding the parts where you had specificity where you could specialize and you know staying staying away from some of this grid management stuff, but then doubling down on the stuff that you know. Now like a few four funds later. Yeah, Really doubling down on that hardware, and you mentioned with that hardware really having to be the education and thought leader with founders. I think that's incredibly informative, and it's also because hardware as a business model is still relatively nascent, especially at least at least compared to software. And so you mentioned being able to help companies who are pitching hardware, and so I just want to double down on that really quickly. You know, maybe high level doesn't have to be long. But are there any mistakes that you see hardware founders, you know, it would make your job a lot easier if they just knew this before talking to you?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of things in tech are about how much you want to reinvent the wheel, right? Like, I I, I think a lot of tech success um, is building on top of existing trends and existing uh Often larger companies that are taking most of the risk, right? And so if you go back and look at sort of Apple early on, if you look at Nvidia in the nineties, if you look at, uh, even Tesla, their first products don't require them to build production and manufacturing, right? They can really contract that stuff out and they focus on synthesis to do something new. And so. I don't think that's what pops into most investors' mind, and I don't think that's what's in most founders' mind when they think about building hardware, right? They, they don't think about the cheat code, which is, I found some Lego pieces. I can go and buy them in large bags, and I can put them together and get a new thing. And that's the cheat code for the beginning. You can always come back and say, hey, this one person who sells me Lego pieces, those guys are ripping me off. I could make much more margin if I just did that myself. Awesome. But the nice part about buying from everyone in the beginning is you can figure out what the most important bits are and you can come back and figure out if you want to take that on and actually set up your own production. And and I think that's the that's the biggest issue. I think, you know, we in the last sort of, you know, six months, we've had a lot more people approach us and say, hey, will you help us with first of a kind? How do you think about first of a kind? And I'm like, there's sort of two flavors of this. There's first of a kind, which is go and buy some Lego bits and put them together. Then it's not really first. It's first in the sense that you put them together in a new way, but the Lego pieces are not new. And so you can find ways to underwrite that. The stuff that's really scary is, hey, I have this amazing thing, and when I've spent 100 million dollars, we can turn on revenue. But first, I need to build, a, you know, a new, <laughs> a new thing before we can do anything. And I think the thing is, this is not this is not a religious belief for us. We just don't have the case studies for where that worked. And selfishly as an investor, I would be fine saying, yeah, go and take that risk. From a climate <laughs> from a climate sort of timeline perspective, I don't want to take those types of risks. Like we have playbooks for stuff that works. We have 30 to 40 years worth of, of hardware playbooks that work. So why why are we discussing new things? Right? Like so so we just we don't like we just we we won't engage like we won't engage on things that we can't look at a playbook and say, yeah, we kind of see how this was done. Your contract manufacturer, your main supplier, those folks are taking most of the risk. They took the hit on capital. That's totally fine because you're just trying to see if they're customers. You can come back and add margin later.
2: Yeah, this is really fascinating. I, I like how you look at this. And I obviously, you know, we wanted to have you on the show because of this reason, because you have all these different insights. And I I thought it was probably the the best talk at Climate Week uh, that I heard even um, even some of the big names that weren't as good so I appreciate this but I want to get into you talking about specifically designing for finance so I I don't know where exactly to start I think perhaps the most interesting thing would be if you want to set it up with uh why you know why v c came up with all these words specifically for v c. to keep private equity out and and we can go into it from there and what are the options? I think there's a couple of things to go through is like what does it look like what's the history? what are the options inside of it, and then we can eventually go break those down into what do you have to achieve to get each of those
0: sure i mean yeah, so maybe maybe one one way to think about where to start is. This is not my idea. I think this is from Founder Collective. They don't ever use the word allocate. They talk about investing. And I think that's a very subtle but important difference, right? Because if I go from a hundred million dollar fund to a billion dollar fund, my problem that I have to solve is slightly different, right? At a hundred million dollars, usually, I'm trying to give companies capital that they need to solve specific problems. At a billion dollars, I have some excess capital that I need to find a home for, that I need to allocate. And there's a point at which that flips, right? And we can argue about where that is, like by fund size or by round. But again, if you look historically at companies that got to the public market, some of the biggest companies in the world didn't raise more than $100 million before they IPO'd. And so the the sort of argument was well you know we can stay private for longer and has all these things and it's like literally I think my take anyway is this is just folks trying to harvest fees right you just more AUM more fees everyone's happy except you you've flipped from being well aligned with f- founders and trying to just get the capital that you need to grow and you now suddenly you're allocating where you have to find a way to get a hundred million dollars onto a single cap table just for your fund okay so that's so that's the that's the, the backdrop and I, and that's important because we could not have this discussion 18 months ago the way that you designed didn't matter because there was infinite capital that you could eventually put on your cap table i mean there really was like we're talking about companies that raised billions of dollars that's like, it's, like completely unprecedented right? It's 10x, it really is 10x more than what was raised by currently the 10 biggest companies in the world. They're mostly tech companies. They didn't, they didn't raise that kind of money. Um, and so, you know, what we were trying to figure out was actually not, um, we were like, hey, you know, building a hardware company is hard. They're just fewer investors, there's less capital. So that was our motivation to go and figure out like, how do you get other capital into these companies? And so we sort of mapped out um and again like this is not new but i think we just spent more time saying assuming it's harder to raise equity what are the other sources right so you can get offtake agreements from customers you can get deposits from customers by the way if these things sound familiar like tesla did this right at the beginning for the roadster they did 100 million dollars in deposits One hundred million dollars. That's capital formation. I don't care, like that's amazing, right? But also by the way, if you are a little bit unsure about product market fit, man, is that great signal? Like if you can't get someone to put down fifty thousand dollars, then maybe you're not selling the right thing. So so customers are phenomenal. Um and I think you get lazy if you can just go and raise money, right? You can you can overlook your product market fit and you can and you can sort of um you know essentially Uh, Let customers off the hook um, and ask them for less. So customers are interesting. Partners are also really interesting in hardware. In the software world, there's no real partnerships, right? There's cloud providers. And I think provider tells you everything you want to know about the relationship, right? They're not cloud partners uh, or they're cloud services. So it's a very, there's no notion of like working together. It's just a thing that you use, uh, an API. And so partners are interesting because most partners, if you are a startup and you go and explain a thing that you're making, they can recognize when customers like that thing and they can recognize when you become a new source of revenue or a new source of growth for them. So they're super well aligned, maybe even more than investors. And so anyway, so we we stepped through and said, okay, customers are interesting, partners are interesting. Um, lenders are interesting. I mean, there's always been venture debt. That's not new. But then we had these sort of fintech explosion of like revenue based finance, which is sort of old school factoring dressed up, you know, in new clothes, um, and a few other products. And then we have a really old idea, which is, which is off balance sheet structures, right? So basically a, a company that will buy an asset and package it into, a subscription or a lease so that you can open up another part of the, you can open up more customer segments. And that was always fascinating because you can go back and look at residential solar and residential solar went through like initially early adopters just paid, right? Cause early adopters tend to have more money. You know, their motivations different. They paid. Then they hit the limits of early adopters. So they're like, oh shit, we need to package this so that you can reduce taking the technology risk and not have to worry about cash flow. And then fast forward a few years, you come back to, oh, actually, this is the thing that I'd like to own. So I want to finance or I actually want to own, I want to buy to own, and maybe I'll roll it into my mortgage or maybe I'll get another product. But there's like three distinct evolutions. And our thought was that that should happen for a bunch of other climate assets. So you can tell like this is already like, If you were a founder worried about how to raise VC, we just introduced a whole bunch of new variables. We're like, oh, you can get cash from your customers, your partners, there's all these lenders doing all sorts of stuff you haven't thought about. There's this thing called underwriting, which requires that you do pro forma and you model out cash flows and effectively you get a credit score. And these are all new things. When we started that, what was fascinating was if you went to look at educational material for lending. In the startup ecosystem, there were two articles that we could find. One was from YC, and one was from Kaufman Fellows, and they were both about venture death.
2: Hey there, thanks for listening to this episode. If you made it this far, it's likely that you're enjoying the show, so I wanted to ask your help. If you're enjoying it, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share with somebody in the same industry who might find this interesting. And if you're interested in getting summaries of these episodes, go subscribe to our newsletter that comes out on LinkedIn and Substack. Links can be found in the description. Thanks for your help in growing the reach of this show. That was the sum total
0: of startup land exposure to lending.
2: That's kind of crazy. I I think this is, um, I wanted to make one comment back on something you said, which was um and i hadn't thought about this but i've told a lot of people i've bumped into about this that you know just get some interest from people get the signal but what i thought was very interesting is it's not necessarily just about a signal but the type of signal maybe you want to raise the barrier to entry a little bit so it demonstrates you know a higher quality interest right somebody i think we talked to this i think it was this week um we talked to one of the corporate vcs and he said uh, you don't want free pilots; <laughs> you want paid pilots, ideally, right? So yep. just kind of wanted to highlight that point. But yeah, Absol- so that's
0: one hundred percent. I think um, the idea that that all customer signals is 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 equal is problematic, right? It's how you have billion-dollar valuation companies that aren't sure if they have product market fit, which is what we have, right? Um, and it's not to knock. The folks who built those companies, like investors were willing to underwrite that risk, just to be clear, like I don't this isn't this is just a systemic thing that results from having too much available capital. And so folks are willing to say, I'll push, I'll wait for that signal. What was helpful, I would say, for the first two or three years was we would invest in companies and we'd say, you know, I don't know if you're going to be able to close another round. That was actually super helpful because you can't lie to yourself. <laughs> you better figure out how to sell stuff to customers. I mean, so so like in retrospect, I'm like, oh wow, you know, we should feel fairly smart. No, we were just dumb and lucky. Like we were, we didn't have a choice, right? And so, you know, we were talking to founders about like, oh, we'll help you raise, and you know, they would pitch. <laughs> and we have like, like, this is Reviven. So we have a company. Uh, Reviven is an e-waste processing company, right? So they collect um electronics from corporates and then they process that in, and ultimately about 80% of it or something gets reused. Business grows 2 to 3x every year since we invested. It, I mean, it's amazing, but it was brutal. Like they raised like 25k, we put in money and then it was like crickets. They just could not raise a dime. Um And so, yeah, I, I think that that reality just forces you to go more aggressively and make sure that you there's a willingness to pay. And offtakes, you know, having an LOI is nice. Having a signed offtake agreement is a whole other thing.
2: Well, one thing, just last last thing I wanted to ask you is if you have examples, I know it's going to vary depending on the, the technology, but so just to try to make it very, very clear, the your point you're trying to make is, you need to qualify the market interest, right? Because you might just have super early adopters, but they may not be valuable. So, do you have examples or maybe a framework that anybody building hardware can use to qualify the market interest to make sure it's actually <laughs> valuable, right, for,
0: for the long haul? Yeah, I think that there are, um, there's a surprising, you can go a surprising distance with sort of a, a lab demonstrator and a techno economic model like a like a good techno economic model where you can sort of show a customer your assumptions and they can say things like if you hit this thing we will pay x amount so that's a threshold that we generally try to hit with most of our companies is like the more specific you can get on if this then that so the if might be you know better faster cheaper but some version of better, faster, cheaper, some combination sometimes. Just, just going through the exercise of having an LOI and having someone sign it is, is useful because it, it it says that you at least directionally are going to the right place. And then going the next step from there, like if you can go from an LOI to someone saying, like, I will sign a contract. Like, this contract is clearly conditional on you delivering these things, but I'll sign a contract. And it looks a little bit like... What the defense industry does right it's like they have massive programs right like that you know they haven't they, they may have a demonstrator they haven't built fighter jets <laughs> you know you're assuming that they can hit certain things and then the program will work so again i don't i don't think this is new i think we just used a different framework because we were doing software for so long and so you could afford to have a lighter touch or or lighter sort of signal gathering because then you very soon had a product and then in a lot of cases you had an enterprise sales team who if they were good could actually overcome any gaps in your product market fit right like a really good sales team could still convince a customer that they needed to pay a premium for a thing that maybe they didn't really need it's harder to do that for hardware. Right. I think that's, you know, I think software sales became really specialized. I think some of the decision making there's maybe less, less pressure. Um, um, There's less risk in sort of buying something that you are then going to use in your production. So you have a revenue dependency, which is often the case in hardware, right? Like you're not, you're not doing a sideline thing. If your thing fails, revenue is at risk. (laughs) So you have different decision making. And again, not to say software is not important. It's just that like the difference between software that's working 100% versus software that's working 80% is some people get annoyed. The difference between hardware working at 80% very often is revenue loss.
1: I think that's a really interesting point. Also, because I think we both on this show and just throughout being in the space have heard about not only when you look at its software, you're looking at building, selling, and then repeating You're able to do this iteration um, in terms of the technology out there. But hardware, you build, sell, and then then replace. And then after that, you have to integrate. So a lot of times, you are fully uprooting a system where the ROI has to be much clearer. And you can't allow for that gradual trend. Or like you said, that 20% loss. Because then you're not getting the investment that you aim to get. And the replacement factor is just much more complicated. So I just wanted to bring that up because I think that point resonated with a lot of the a lot of the frameworks in which people talk about why hardware is harder and it's and it is really interesting to hear you and also it's you know more than interesting it's inspiring i think to hear that hey like we have this base of knowledge why don't we like start to use it and inform like the people who help
0: yeah come to us. I, look i think the, i think the hardest thing is we i don't i really don't think we figured out anything new like people knew all of this stuff in the 80s all of it, <laughs> like really, like the only thing that we different is maybe, you know, there's more AI, maybe there's like cheaper components, but otherwise it's the eighties, right? And the, the, the I think the biggest challenge is that, um, if you survey a group of investors and say, when was the last time you went to a factory tour, um, a lot of folks just haven't been in years. And, and that's part of the problem. So, th- so, th- so that gives you a sense of a level of discomfort of sort of there are real risks in hardware, but a lot of the risks are imagined. Um, and so there just is a smaller universe of folks who, who who sort of are comfortable with this. And also, if you haven't been working in hardware, then you haven't had to sort of come up with a framework. So, so I mean, again, like I, we are sort of accidentally in the right place at the right time. Because we just decided ten years ago we wanted to try some things that probably shouldn't have worked, and when they started to work, you just get a crude learning from sort of doing the stuff, talking to founders, seeing you know the supply chain problems, seeing the sort of product market fit problems. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm 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 really optimistic. Like I'm not worried about if anymore. I, I'm mostly worried about when. You can you can get through some of these things, and and when is still a reason to worry, right? Like we can we can cross some thresholds that that are going to be, you know, a lot of avoidable pain and suffering. Um, and that's probably the only concern. But but I, but I think like another way to think about this is we sort of at the right moment in time decided we were going to build rebuild most human systems you know, this is the first time probably in a hundred years we'll be seriously revisiting everything. Um, And we have some phenomenal key technologies, right? That should generally always outperform the incumbent options, which is kind of amazing. I mean, it's like, you know, that's like, no one designed that. That's just like, we just at the right moment, we have most of the things we need.
1: I definitely agree with that. I think that that old topic, I think, you know, I think Silas and I are kind of feeling very much the same way. There's a million things we'd want to ask about this, but there's one other major component that you spoke you talked about, which is optimism, I think optimism is an opportunity. And a lot of that has to do with, uh, you know, to transition for the audience, the escalator of impact. So that was a big part of your design for finance talk, your thesis. So just to give a bit of a background, the escalator of impact, you know, it's again, to just to paraphrase in a way that's much less eloquent than what you would say. There are six components, and it follows as grants, venture capital, customers, partners, lenders, and off-balance sheet. And so, one thing I want to get into is that's sort of the high level. And you know, for the audience especially, please feel free to look this up on your own. If you look up, you know, the Escalator of Impact, uh, Third Sphere, I think you should be able to find it. Um, it's from Sean's topic, uh, topic and talk from Climate Week. The thing I wanted to ask you is of these segments which one is the least understood or utilized?
0: Um, yeah, so I mean, I can probably just step through them and and maybe talk about, you know, the status of each. Like, um, so I think like generally folks are doing a good job on customer discovery. Like, we, you know, I think what we're talking about is it, it's a little bit of a refinement to say, you could maybe push a bit more and try and get more commitments from customers. There's certainly folks in software who do that. Um, so I think customers has done relatively well. Um, it's sort of an incremental thing. I think partners, um, it, we're relearning how to do it. Right, the, the folks who've worked with partners very well, um, the folks coming out of places like you know Apple and SpaceX and Tesla, that there are there are places where people have um, worked really well with partners. I think the corporate vc world is also super helpful because i think in a pure software world their role is not as interesting they're sort of second tier citizens in that world but in the physical world they really do bring a lot i mean i would argue they are they are better than financial investors um because they can bring terms they can bring expertise um and things like that so i would say in that case like the startup ecosystem may not be that good, but the corporate VCs that are doing this are phenomenal. Um, and so I'm not that worried about it. I think it's happening. And we just I, I think in a lot of cases, we're just trying to keep up. Um, uh, lending, I think there's been a lot more education, um, you know, in a sort of post-Silicon Valley Bank, first republic world. Those folks are doing most of the venture debt and I I think founders have asked a lot more questions about what is that really, right? What is that product? I mean, it has venture in the name, so it seems like it should be good, but it's actually kind of a silly product, right? It basically says, if you have cash, I'll lend you money. Also, I need to talk to the people who will give you more cash to make sure I get paid. So it's like a circular reference. and what's funny about that is like, yeah, there are other products. Like there are things like revenue-based finance. There are things like, you know, working capital. Um, there are things like being able to take a loan against physical assets, which hardware companies have. Um, and so I think founders are getting more educated about that. Um, I think the difficulty was less founders, actually. I think it was more VCs and sort of startup boards who I think had like some very legitimate concerns about terms and conditions in terms of like, what happens if you can't repay a loan, right? So what are the covenants or, you know, whatever, but basically the terms and conditions mean that as a preferred investor, you suddenly are not the most preferred, right? Um, And so in some cases, I think this is where we had a little bit of a battle where you would rather say... As an equity investor, I want a 2x liquidation preference and call it equity, but it really is a lot, right? Having a liquidation preference is really a lot um, in the way that it affects everyone else except for that investor or that class of shares. So I still think there's a little bit – the good news, I think, is if, if VC is shrinking, the available VC dollars are shrinking, most founders are now like, oh, I heard about this thing before. My board didn't want me to do it 12 months ago, but actually there's a bunch of stuff that I should look at. So again, I'm not too worried about it. I think um, off-balance sheet is complicated. It's like it's a new territory for most folks. Um, I think we have struggled to figure out how to pitch it, frankly. Um, I think we finally got to the point where I think It's a little bit misleading to call it credit or lending. What it really is, is a distribution partnership, right? Where you have a new entity that buys assets that has a relationship with the startup and repackages those assets for customers. You don't actually need to touch the capital markets as a founder. You just need to agree to the terms and conditions of having that particular distribution partner. So I think that may be the hack to make that easier. But I think part of the struggle at was we were just we were just explaining it in a not very <laughs> hard way, right? We kept talking about it yeah. and it's like that's actually not what it is um and so you you end up having these sort of convoluted conversations about well, you know there's like first loss and then there's you know a lender and there's credit boxes and then you know, all these things, and you know founders' eyes have rolled into their head already, and they're like i don't I don't, I don't want this like it seems too hard. So I'd say like off-balance sheet is is probably the least understood, but I think it's getting packaged differently. And then grants, I think, are like hit or miss, right? Like if we go across our portfolio, some folks do it well. Um, some folks don't even apply for grants. Um, and I think the good news is we're starting to see some folks work on automation of like matching and then grant writing. So that may actually be a capital formation piece that can be somewhat automated but it's, it's been sort of a mixed bag, not, or not a reliable yeah. part of the couple.
2: Yeah. I think we are seeing some people, uh, some people do this. I remember one person in particular, hopefully we'll have them on the show at some point, but they stood up and asked a question uh, at your event and it wasn't really a question. It was just an advertisement for their, <laughs> uh, for their grant automation software. But, um, that was hilarious, honestly legend, but, um, what I wanted to ask was, so on this off-balance sheet thing, just make sure I get this right. So can you give examples of this? I I, I think this was, if I'm not mistaken, Wasted was an example of this one. Or I don't know if I have that right. But you so guys gave some examples. Is, what
0: are- yeah, Wasted, they talked a little bit about this. So so we can use Wasted as an example. So the, so the way that um, generally this starts is um, a sort of specialty lender um, and, and it's specialty because in the case of wasted, it's someone who knows enough about like porta potty rental that they understand the cash flows, they understand the risk, they understand how to sort of get out of their position if wasted fails. And those are usually the important parts of underwriting. And they'll they'll lend to wasted in a traditional on balance sheet way, right? Um, we don't have to get into specific numbers, but let's just say they're going to lend them a certain amount of money that they can use to build out their fleet to collect the highly desirable human waste that they need for their business. The the way that you graduate from that, let's say, you know, there's a limit at some point, like, you know, there's sort of debt to equity ratios where it would be unusual if they would raised like 20 million and they were trying to raise 100 million in debt, right? like there's a point at which the underwriting is going to break. And again, we don't have to go into what that threshold is, but it's just like it would be unusual to have 100 million of debt and 20 million of equity in that company unless there's some very, like, high margin. Anyway, to avoid hitting into the upper limit from your lenders, eventually this lender, you could go to them and say, hey, actually, this seems to be working. We want to go to 50 cities we're going to have a massive fleet of porter parties. let's actually set up a party, uh, an s p v for porter part porta parties right where we don't even as wasted, we don't even want to own those anymore right you as a lender are going to set up a porter porter party, party ownership company. we will manage them essentially we will make sure that they produce cash, but you will figure out how to you know get the cash to buy them. And you'll own them and if our company fails you're going to figure out what to do with them but the benefit that i have is wasted is i now get to scale where i don't have to worry about the capital required for port parties i probably don't have to worry about capital required for my truck fleet either right so like we get that there are companies that will lease you a truck it's just that most people haven't sort of peeled back the leasing company To realize that it's just a specialty vehicle that's raising its own money to buy and own the truck and then turning around and renting it out. So we just think you can do that over and over again. And that is effectively buy now, pay later for finance for for climate, right? It's just, it's a magic trick that founders probably don't have to figure out, but someone needs to figure out like they need to figure out that this is actually a new product for their customers. The day that I can show up and say, uh, you know, as wasted, you know, I don't have to buy a port party so I can run a service. I can go to my customers and just say, hey, you know, there's no sign up. We'll we'll start tomorrow. Like there's no upfront fee. There's nothing. I don't, I, I can, as soon as I'm ready, sign a contract, go to my leasing company, tell them I need, you know, 20 new port parties and off we go. Mm. And there's no capital markets interaction.
2: action. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's really interesting because if they can focus on that, there's so much more, you could talk about mental energy, right? They can focus on just doing the scaling rather than constantly worrying about the financing. But I, I can assume that as a kind of off the back of this, there will be off the back of this growth of climate, there will be a lot of these related kind of technologies. People get comfortable with things and then other people make connections where they, they you know, maybe some of these financial landers may not have any interest in climate per se, but they're like, oh, I, I can see that. Like, I can understand that. And then they're going to make vehicles. Right. So what
0: would you describe for me as the perfect world where, where there are a bunch of selfish people that just want to look at the returns and they're like, hell yes, I want to bring this climate asset into the world and I don't even care what it is. Yeah, like yeah. that that that's amazing then we then we've won
2: yeah i think it's going to be interesting to see that 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 ecosystem develop on the back end because people like again we don't really think about um Necessarily, some of the the traditional infrastructure and hardware stuff so much anymore because it's just like it's kind of like you know run of the uh run of the mill normal stuff people are used to it, right? It's it's pretty simple. But I know we have a lot of other things to get into, so I'm gonna let someone take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, there's to there's, you, there's yeah. some really uh, we could probably talk for six hours, but <laughs> we'll we'll move it over to keep our time. So we'll go on to insights if someone wants to go.
1: No, yeah, definitely. And I, if anything, this this means we're due for another episode. So so just putting that out there, putting that into the universe. Um, But I'd love to get into the insights part of our show. Again, this is a couple, generally speaking, we'll probably throw three or four topics at you give like a, you know, one to two minute response, just high level, what you think is most important about them. I think this is our way of bringing in what the audience has been telling us they want to hear and getting incredibly intelligent people like you to answer on them. So I'll start off with, uh, you know, probably my favorite, which is the IRA. Um, What I want to ask you is not necessarily about the IRA, but about its impact. How much do you think policy matters for startups?
0: Um, I think early on, not very much. Um, I think I, we think of it as like, this is a tailwind that's going to let you scale faster. But I think they're usually, for the stuff that early stage founders are talking about, policymakers are not really thinking about it as much. I'm generalizing, but that's that's been what we've seen. I think what we worry about is Confusion about customer signal, right? So, coming back to like the early part of the conversation, it's like it's easy to convince yourself sometimes that a rebate is going to be the thing that makes your business work or that makes the economics work. And so, we just pay attention to that, right? Like, it, it's nice that those things exist, but we want to make sure that, um, you know, there's more to the demand than, oh, it's just cheap for a while um, or cheaper. Um and I think where maybe it does matter is if we're thinking about underwriting. So let's say we're looking at a new company that well, I can't say the name because we didn't invest yet, so sorry. But but they do they're in the textile waste space, they make reactors. The reactors are probably gonna be a few million dollars. It would be nice if you could fairly quickly get to like an off bound sheet vehicle and and see if there are parts of the IRA that would be relevant, right? So you know, whether it's local manufacturing or you know, there's probably a part of the stack that will be relevant. You know, what's hard about it is you know, for us to like understand the IRA in like the transferable tax equity piece, you usually are having, you know, some pretty detailed discussions with lawyers. So it's interesting. Like we we think about it from a off balance sheet. Like if you can make this work, it will basically make capital cheaper, and you can do off balance sheet sooner. But it's a nice to have versus a prerequisite for for our for us to make it a, a decision.
1: The next one I have for you is climate and AI. So two buzzwords, two very very big things for investors nowadays. Um, the thing I want to ask you is, how do you believe AI is impacting climate? Um,
0: I'd probably like. Three ways. I think the the sort of obvious way in which it's impacting everything is like you you can there's certain business functions that you can somewhat automate, right? And so we talked about grant automation. There's RFP automation. There's a lot of like sales, marketing, and other functions where if you invest a little bit of time, there's probably a big payoff in terms of you know how quickly you can go. Um, and, you know, and from a startup burn perspective, like that's the that's the win is a smaller team can do more, and that's great. Um, in looking sort of across climate, so those are sort of verticals. looking across climate, if you think about sort of designing new products, design for manufacture, you know operations, inspections, maintenance all of those things we're seeing, you know, AI being used to automate. So like design is very interesting because it's like you're locking in most of your costs when you're making design decisions, being able to do a few more iterations and have those iterations be smarter. With like a co-pilot, means that you just the chances of us getting like cheaper heat pumps <laughs> goes up, right? Just because because you you've got you know you've got superpowers at the design stage. So so that's that's interesting. You know same things gonna be true in maintenance. Like we're seeing that across. The third thing, and this is like this this is the hardware superpower. If you're worried about building a moat, best moat in AI is is generate your own data. Right. And and a lot of that that's what hardware does amazingly well. Right. So we see this in all sorts of interesting things. It's like some obvious stuff like, hey, I'm gonna build a remote sensing company, awesome, I have my own imaging and I can analyze that. That's great. Less obvious are things like I'm I'm looking at a nineteen seventies process for cement production that was too hard to characterize and control. And now I can characterize and control it super cheaply because of AI. You know, so like, I literally can build control systems for things that I couldn't control five years ago, which is wild.
1: I'm 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 writing down that exact thing, which is hardware to build an AI moat, a data moat. I think that's like I'm I'm definitely going to be thinking about that after the show. I think that's a really really interesting phenomenon because it's true. And I think a lot of people don't recognize the defensible position they're creating. I think that's, that's one of
2: the biggest arguments that people a lot of the time make with Tesla, right. Is because they have just purely more, more data that they've collected, right. Compared to all the other. Uh, Yeah. I
0: mean, like we could do a Tesla rabbit hole. I mean, I like when you think about software controlled chemical reactions, like I don't think most folks in the auto industry understood that's what they were up against. Right, they're like, oh, cell cost, et cetera, et cetera. But like, dynamically controlling the pack based on navigation, based on weather, based on a charging event, like that's just—it's just bonkers. It's like such a refined experience, but it is a function of you have all the data, right? You can you can change the behavior. Like software-defined hardware is the thing. Mm-hmm. Having all that data to learn about your hardware and refine the experience—very tough to catch that, right? Um so yeah, so I mean we love stuff like that. I mean, I think that's the sort of secret weapon if you want to go and go head to head with incumbents. Really, really hard to build a culture around that. Really, really hard.
1: The next again, it, it pains me to move off this topic, but I <laughs> no, no, to guess to okay, okay, okay. uh, something that you're probably one of the best, if not like the best, especially given the way that you look at the iterations within hardware. Commercializing your first hardware MVP is something that we've heard from founders is the biggest concern. And I think it's a two-edged sword because I think in the past you had a lot of people transitioning industries, looking at climate, thinking about, okay, how do we adapt technologies? But now because of how big climate has gotten and how much news there is, there's a whole new wave of entrepreneurs who are getting into hardware who are not necessarily from the industry, not necessarily from hardware-centric industries. So there's a lot of questions circulating around how do you create a hardware MVP and how does it work? And so maybe given your experience rather than asking that to you can you share a story or maybe a general theme of successful stories about how companies have made their hardware mvps and then scaled
0: Yeah I'm trying to think I mean I think the 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 tricky thing here is that a 100 million dollar piece of hardware because there are things like that <laughs> is very different than a $1000 piece of hardware and we have a very, very strong bias to the high volume, cheap things, right? So like, we didn't talk about this, but like a, a core belief for us is that we need learning curves to get better, faster, cheaper. And you can't have learning curves if you do things a hundred times, you need to do things a million times. So if you defined your market size and you said, okay, I think there's a 10 billion market opportunity and I'm making things that are hundred million dollars at a time, you just don't get to do it enough times. Right versus the team that's going to build a $10,000 thing and do it a million times. Um, so, so I'd say that as a starting point. I think there are for the MVPs in the sort of sub $10,000. Um, it's fairly straightforward, right? Like there, there are there's crowdfunding on the one side, which we don't see as much of, but you, but there are ways to do it. There's suppliers who understand how to do it. There are people at Amazon who will do low-volume launches. There's there's frameworks to do that size thing. And in the B2B world, there are equivalents, right? Like, you can build out a pipeline and ship a, you know, 3D-printed version. Like, you don't need a sort of finished high-volume product. Like, you, there's lots of ways to hack the thing together. It's like, here's 80% of the stuff I bought from Home Depot, and we're just going to 3D print this, this box and give it a nice screen and we'll call it a product and everyone's convinced. Um, and, and I think that's like, where that's interesting is that we come back to the sort of software defined, right? Where it's like a lot of the pieces you can just go and buy and assemble. And mm-hmm. the magic is a control system or the magic is the, the cloud service that it's attached to. And so you don't, what you're giving up usually is margin right? You're probably charging too much and it's too little margin, but it, it's it's not, I don't think it's that difficult, right? Like I think, I still think like relative to the customer signal, the customer signal is harder. Like not falling in love with the technology is actually quite hard. And like being honest about what customers want is quite hard. And then scaling from there, I think um, there are some sort of chicken and egg, like escalator of impact problems where it's like, I can't get working capital because I don't have the revenue history, right? But that's also changing, right? So Shopify will lend you based on performance, so you have a nice sort of product suite forming there. Um but that's still where a lot of teams get stuck is you you kind of have to have enough customer signal that you can pre-sell stuff. That's that's how you manage cash flow early on. Um and then the partner piece becomes critical because one of the things that we expect like if you if if we see a pitch and there isn't a bill of materials with one thing that is just obviously more expensive if if the logo associated with that thing is not a partner that wants to be on the cap table you know we have questions <laughs> right like there should be there should be a partner you know that is like hey we really love this and we will help provide cash we'll either provide terms as a supplier we'll provide a loan or we'll be on the cap table or all of the above so we think that the scaling is ultimately like where do you get you have to answer the cash question and you know this is why we keep coming back to design for finance is like that's how you get from my sort of 3d printed hack together thing in maybe 100 units to 10,000 you know or 100,000 units um And then I'll I'll admit, like, I don't know. We have some companies, you know, Bowery Farming is, you know, is building indoor. That's probably the biggest, you know, hardware product. Um, I don't know if we can do a lot of those. It's not, it's going, it's going fine. Like, I think the team has done great. I think they probably are still leading the category. I think there's lots of reasons to actually be more excited about the category now, despite a lot of failures. but but I think the next biggest assets are in the couple of million scale. Right, so. You know, I think, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead, go ahead.
1: I was gonna say before we move on to the next one, um, I just want to point out and, and kind of shout out to you that that level of specificity and linearity between um, the different types of capital intensity for your MVP and also like the delineation of the requirements of each of those are something that I don't think we've had the opportunity to hear yet on this show. Um, and if anything, it's it's something that I think you can only get from the amount of experience that you had. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, the last part of the inside show before I let Silas jump back in is, um, this is something we love to do. We're gonna put you on the spot here. If you had, if for some reason you had to leave third sphere, they, they decided four funds was enough. The fifth one needed to be someone new. You have to build a company right now. What specific space and climate would you build
0: and why? Um, I mean, I think I call it like climate defense, which is basically, you know, do a full service adaptation company, um, probably for real estate. Um, So I'm not sure exactly what that looks like. Some of that is insurance, some of that is physical changes. Some of that is first responders, but it's basically taking some of what we've learned in building out a resilience and adaptation framework and just turning it into a service. Um, And the reason is that I just think that that is part of the reason we haven't talked about that is the folks that determine the cost of climate is actually not a lot of them. It's basically the reinsurance companies. And it's only in the last 12 months that they started to set prices in a way that reflect the actual shifting risks. And so I think, you know, safe asset classes like infrastructure and real estate and things that were reliable are are suddenly much more risky. And so I think that's a huge investment opportunity, uh, opportunity to build something. I think insurance isn't really designed for this rate of change um nor is real estate and so when you have i think two changes in things that have been relatively stable you know that's a fun place to build
2: that's interesting that's actually really uh i think quite fascinating i think I, this is something i was wondering like oh you know i wonder what why, why does anybody buy property in miami right now <laughs> like, for example right but um that's interesting know uh, i appreciate that and i also like it because it's not necessarily uh I mean, there's a lot of tech involved, but it's also, it could be somebody who's not an engineer or scientist could figure that out, right? Um, I like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think potentially like to understand exposure and model risk, there's potentially like some really interesting physical things that you could do, but also some really interesting risk modeling. Like I think if you can, if you can put those things together into an offering, they they generally haven't really been combined at scale. Um, and that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I... Um, yeah, I would just add, like, I think that like, the probably the most needed thing or the more, more needed thing I we've struggled on the most, which is I would say biodiversity. Um, so so protecting non-human systems doesn't have a business model. It sounds like sort of crazy to say that aloud, but that's the biggest problem. It's not that I wouldn't want to build something and we just really haven't figured out what that looks like. But it's probably more necessary than any of the things that we discussed.
2: Yeah, that is interesting. I have seen some people doing pretty interesting analysis around how to demonstrate the the economic value to local governments, right? Because then they have an incentive, right? Because they're going to lose revenues if something goes south, right? So it's not necessarily a business, but it's more of a preventative measure. We can say, listen, the likelihood is going to be that you're going to cut your revenues by X amount if you don't you know, plant these mangroves or whatever, right? Um, so yep. there is some interesting things happening there. It, that is a good point. But um, I, I wanna move on to, we've got a couple minutes left here. Um, let's go into your advice to founders, right? So we'll go through a couple of things, but uh, my favorite one, a little bias obviously, is on the topic of hiring and especially hiring a founding team.
0: Oh, uh, um, yeah, I mean, the thing that I didn't realize about my job is that I I've more and more become like a marriage counselor. Um. And so I think my favorite sort of recent discussion on this topic is two founders who met like nine months ago and what they decided to do is like artificially subject their relationship to stress. Right. So like, you know that the thing like that routinely breaks relationships is outside stress. So I really like the idea of like just stress testing. Right. So If you've known someone for a while and you've worked on hard things together, that's great. If you built a startup together, that's great. If you are trying to discover someone that you can work with, like set a ridiculous deadline. Right. And 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 try and work towards it and see and see what happens (laughs) in the process. But like finding a way to artificially stress the relationship, I think, is important because that's that's I, I think the thing. That matters maybe more than the skills, maybe more than a lot of things is like, what is going to happen when, when, when things are going sideways, when things go wrong? Um,
2: Yeah, that's actually, that's actually really fascinating because, you know, I've done a, I've done some co-founder searches and it's always really weird because it's like, hey, like, well, you're just going to find somebody off the street. You know, it's very unusual in, in most like kind of the tech world to go find a co-founder. You usually know somebody. You're like, hey, let's build this thing together. It's pretty natural. It's organic. And you go from there, right? But in a lot of cases, you see these quite a lot of venture studios just like kind of smashing people together, right? we got a scientist. we got an idea. we got a commercial guy. We're going to, you know. Yeah, gonna, I
0: mean, <laughs> look, I think it's like, um, you know, if you go through sort of your friends that are in relationships, like how do they meet? And then can you sort of backtest the relationships that work? Like a lot of people have met online um, and they work fine. I think, I think the, the the harder thing to know is if shit goes sideways, is it easier for someone to just be like, oh, I'm out? Like, I don't, my friends and my family told me not to spend more time. I'm worried about, you know, my resume and whatever it is. Um, and so, like, how, how can you find a way to create that stress? because you just otherwise it's really hard to that's the thing that i think you want to know most about the person or the people Mm -hmm. as co-founders
2: yeah no i think that's really uh maybe not necessarily actionable but at least give some people an idea they got to think about it right uh on that what what are your thoughts um or pieces of advice around let's say i i think probably the most important thing i'm interested about is scaling so people like any growth hacks in particular i know you said you focus a lot on Um, kind of smaller purchase items compared to, you know, massive machinery. So we can kind of focus on that. Any go-to-market pieces of advice?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think the growth hack for us is generally we're looking at like techno-economic models where you get to do something over and over again enough times, right? And and 100 times is not enough, right? Plausibly, you need to be able to do something 10,000 or 100,000 times. And so I think, you know, it's, the The biggest scaling hack in hardware is techno economic learning curves like that's that's the that's the winner that's the network effect of hardware um you know other hacks i think as you as you scale and we've talked a little bit about things like off balance sheets and non dilutive like if you can use those things well um you don't need to raise um cap table or like equity um but yeah, I mean, most of the stuff that we do, I think there's like, I don't know if we have a great sort of repeatable set of insights around distribution. <laughs> you know, it's like putting things into the physical world. Um, maybe the only other thing is like limiting soft costs and customization. Right. So, so the, the you know, if, if there's a truck roll, which is, delivering the thing and you get the thing and plug it in and it works it's very hard to beat that right the more truck rolls you have to go and look at the site to make sure that you have everything you need you know like basically if you count truck rolls you know more is worse right and so i think in an ideal world for us if you want to scale your truck roll is basically the delivery truck that's it no other truck rolls no
2: that's helpful i appreciate that
0: and now we're we're kind
1: of coming on the last episode, last question of the show. Um, so I, I want to ask something that I think is, you know, even though it's the last question, I think it might be one of the most insightful portions, which is, you know, there's a lot of people who are thinking about transitioning, not just from the founding side, from the investment side to being new fund managers and climate and thinking about it. And so I just want to ask you, you know, same thing, advice for people who are, you know, either current fund managers or aspiring fund managers, even if you're like 18 and have big dreams, like what, what advice would you have to those people about getting into climate um, from an investing and capital deployment perspective?
0: Um, I mean, I may, I'll just talk about the stuff. I think we just, we, we were slow to learn or just didn't do well. I think ultimately investors want to know how they're going to make money. right? And so it's like, you know, it's, it's, very easy to get caught up in, you know, what people should do, what investors should do, what customers should do. And I think just sanity checking sort of what do you think can actually happen? Like what types of companies do you think can be built? There's a very big gap between, I think, the things that make headlines and sound great and the reality, which is a lot of this stuff is kind of boring, um you know, for a lot of people. There's, there's a lot of detail. There's a lot of things to figure out. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I I think like the, the, the pitch to LPs, um, I think a lot of LPs, maybe two years ago were like, let's do this thing. Let's save the planet. I think that's, that's changed dramatically and it's much more like, you know, I almost think we spend more time talking about the, Hey, we get to rebuild 90% of the economy. That's awesome. Right. Oh, by the way, it also solves climate. Right. And that it feels odd, right? Like if you look at our deal memos, if you look at how we work internally, we want to solve climate, right? Like there's no question that that's a priority, but I think understanding what LPs like, we just didn't do a great job. We spent a lot of time worrying about founders and trying to make sure we could support. I think we were much less thoughtful about, you know, how to raise and, and how to talk to LPs. Um, and then in terms of like where you show up, like what's interesting is, you know, I think VC gets probably too much attention. I think other types of capital we've talked about, right? So like, you know, working at a partner that's that's going to work with startups, um, being a customer, um, you know, working on sort of non-dilutive, like that stuff is, just doesn't get that much attention. But there's probably more opportunity if you, particularly if you're thinking about, you know, a new career, you know, or even if you're early on in your career. I would guess that, you know, figuring out how to do underwriting for new assets is going to be more interesting and a larger payoff than early stage VC, for example. Right. Um, And then the last thing I'll say, like, I think if you want to do growth, growth and PE, I think our main question is when we have a founder going to raise a series A, what advantage does the climate fund have over top 10 percent? generalist fund and the answer very often is nothing and that's that's a problem because then at growth stage the question is what is what are growth stage climate investors actually doing differently than their peers in the generalist investors i think
1: that's a that's a a great point and if anything a great one to close out on because i think it does kind of circle back to you know maybe a generalist investor has their network has the ability to scale but there is a need for differentiation, same way in which you found the ways and climate that you would be able to double down on your strengths and, and really advance that. So I think it's an amazing point to close out on. Again, thank you so much, Sean, for coming on. Um, one thing I wanna bring up to you is where can people find you? How, you know, I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of people I think who love this show. So where can they follow up with you?
0: Um, I, I'm, I'm like old school email person. I mean, you can try LinkedIn and, and Twitter, um, but, but you know, Sean at ThirdSphere will get to me, and I, I'm i pretty responsive. Um, the worst case is I might say I can't meet, but I'll start a thread on email. But, but email is probably the easiest way. So just it's my first name at ThirdSphere.com.
2: Awesome. Well, this is a pleasure to have Perfect. you. Perfect. I really do appreciate you. And, awesome. and it's what um, I think we'll probably have to, you know, close it off with another, another episode at some point down the road. Um, but definitely, you know, uh, appreciate you taking the time and, and looking forward to seeing what people think about this.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me.